Well, as I've thought about this passage, uh, there's, there's a number of things going on in this passage, and one of the best ways that I thought about it in the way that I saw it was to think about it in terms of a fire. Uh, and, and that's because I had a certain image come to mind for me as I was preparing, and that is uh, something that I try to do at least once a year, which is go on a personal retreat. Uh, and when I go on a personal retreat, I, I normally take two to three days where I just kind of go off, and, um, and it's just me, no one else. Uh, I'm typically camping, and I will spend uh, all, the whole time really just uh, reading and, and by myself, which, is, which for some of you I'm sure sounds awesome, um, and for others of you sounds not so awesome, uh, especially the camping bit, but that's, that's what I do. One of my favorite, favorite things uh, about that trip is creating the fire. So I'm always outside, uh, and when I create the fire, uh, it's one of my favorite parts because, of course, I always do it at night, and so it's, it's very helpful, whether it's cold or dark or whatever. Um, and uh, the image that came to mind for me in doing this was that uh, it, it, the church is very much like lighting a small fire, not to encourage anybody to do anything today. But uh, this, this is something that happens when, when you go camping or if you uh, go out and do that sort of thing, then you typically have to go out, you have to find the, the, uh, the wood, you have to find the sticks, you have to find the leaves, all that, and you put it together, uh, and that's what I do. And I, I do it so I arrange it in the, with the maximum amount of airflow and uh, j- just the right design. And uh, part of that's having a fireman for a dad, I suppose. I have to think very critically about how I build a fire and if I can put it out at a moment's notice. But, uh, but that's what I do. And, and as I start the fire, I always look at it, and, and I'm always trying to start it just with a, a little flame. That's all you have to do, just a little flame. And as you start it, you always have to protect it. You almost have to nurture it. Um, and this is kind of what's happening in Acts. And as you nurture it, then you feed it more. You feed it more, and it grows and grows and grows. And this is what is happening in the book of Acts with the church. It's very similar with the church. The church is like a flame. And as we, we saw in Acts 2, uh, tongues of flames, in fact, and it has grown. In chapters 1 through 5, we've seen that this little fire of God's community, his church, has started to grow larger and larger. And that's in opposition of the religious leaders, and ultimately Satan, as, as we saw last week, was behind so much of the subterfuge to knock out the church. Regardless, this church keeps growing in the book of Acts, and so it does here to chapter 6. Some things change in chapter 6, though. Chapter 6 presents to us a little bit of a change in the story that will that will result in a monumental change in the story of Christianity. And, and the things at play are this. You could say this is the main point for this morning that we'll, look, we'll get from Acts 6. is that the church becomes more like Jesus through conflict and persecution. The church becomes more like Jesus through conflict and persecution. And as we've seen with the main theme of Acts that we've said, just to remind you, is this, that the powerful, 
unstoppable movement of God to save people happens through those who've experienced Jesus and are being led by his spirit. Take a breath. That's, that's a long one. It's a long sentence, but this very much encapsulates the purpose of Acts. I'll say it again. The powerful, unstoppable movement of God to save people happens through those who've experienced Jesus and are being led by his spirit. We see a glimpse of this in Acts 1.8 as Jesus begins the book, saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, at the beginning of Acts, gives, you, gives me a map for how to read the book. There is a progression in it. It's a geographic progression. First, it's Jerusalem. That's where this little fire is ignited and builds. And then, as we'll see in the rest of Acts, it grows and grows until it fills the whole world, until it fills even the seats here today. You and I are very much a part of that fire so many years ago. And so we see in Acts 1 through 7 is really the focus of Jerusalem in, in the book of Acts. And then it moves on to Jerusalem and Judea, and, or to uh, Judea and Samaria. And, and as that happens, kind of a question that would be really helpful for us as we are reading Acts is to say, what is it? Like, what ignites this change? What happens in Acts that it all of a sudden, this, this very, very unknown man in the Roman Empire, Jesus, all of a sudden in this belief uh, as they'll say, a sect within Judaism forms around him. How is it that that little thing, Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, became this worldwide phenomenon? How is that possible? This chapter, Acts 6 and Acts 7, give you the answers to that question. And we will start to see it in Acts 6, and then we will see really the, the main reason in Acts 7. But we'll go ahead and get started in Acts 6. And as we do, we see that it centers around two different components that come together to produce one thing. The first, and these are our points for today, that the first is the first internal conflict of the church. This is what happens in Acts 6, 1 through 7. The first internal conflict of the church. Second, the external persecution of the church. In verses 8 to 15. And last, we'll see the result, the result of the conflict and persecution on the church. What does it come together to produce? So that's where we're going to look at. Let's start in, in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose in the Hebrews, against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what is the conflict that's going on? This is easy for us to miss, but this conflict is in sharp contrast to everything that you've seen in the church so far in Acts. I mean, they are living in a way that most people can't even imagine. They're selling their possessions. They're, they're caring for one another. Uh, they are living with one another from homes. They're talking about uh, sermons in some sense uh, from home to home together. They're for the first time experiencing all of this knowledge that they've gained in their life uh, and now seeing it in a new light with Jesus. And as they do that, for the first time in Acts 6, they will experience conflict. The first thing that we learn 
is that this conflict is a difference between languages. Um, It's a little bit easier uh, if you're more familiar with the Bible, but Helenus just means Greek. Okay, so that that is a, a, a... typically a kind of person, a a group of people, the Helenists, that would have spoken Greek. And here's the division. It's a complaint by the the Greek-speaking Jews versus the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And so uh, this, this is a division between peoples. Now think about this. These are these are all Jews. They're not Gentiles. They're not people who are outside of the line of Abraham or the Jewish people. These are all Jews. They're all in Jerusalem. And they're all believers. But at the same time, they have divisions that exist in them. They have a rift. And it mainly has to do with, at least starting out, with language. And so there is a a bit of division. Now, if you read some commentaries, some people say like, well, they probably didn't have any divisions. I, I find that difficult to believe, especially, especially because uh, language barriers. We all know that language barriers innately cause some sort of rift, whether intentional or unintentional. Uh, besides that, these people, so you have the one group with the, the Greek-speaking Jews, and then the Aramaic-speaking Jews, which was the language of the time in Palestine, and as that's going on, that, that causes certain things to happen in their culture. They have cultural differences. Yes, they're all Jews, but they worship in different synagogues even. Because one speaks Greek, one speaks Aramaic. Not only that, uh, another way that you could look at it is to say that uh, the, uh, this was kind of a typical opinion at the time that we have from Jewish writers back then, but the the Helenists typically regarded Hebrews as quite narrow-minded and self-centered. So in some perspective, you can see that the, the uh, Greek-speaking Jews were far more liberal in some ways. They didn't pay as close attention to the dietary laws and so many other things. And the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking Jews did. Uh, so there is a real tension between these peoples here. And that's the issue going on they have a dispute. They have a conflict between them. And that's the first thing that comes up for the church. And this really presents just the tip of the iceberg of a bigger problem that we'll get to in Acts. But that is the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And it is a tremendous one. But that's for another day. So let's keep reading in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the problem is there's a conflict where widows, some widows are not getting the daily ration of food. The solution is, uh, or the problem is noticed by the apostles. And what do they say? They say, that is a problem. Yes, we have a problem. But we have a job to do. We still have a job to do. Um, and, and so what they say then is that you need to select seven men from among you to help with this. But it's important for us to point out that the apostles, they summon all the disciples. And at this time, some people say there could have been 22,000 disciples. So it's not a small number. It's very easy for people to get overlooked in this kind of number of people. And they tell them, 
their first priority must be preaching. And then they qualify and say preaching and prayer. I think we need to think about this for a moment. It would be really easy to pass over this. The problem is the daily distribution of food. That is a real problem. Food and clothing, we would all say, are real needs. They're some of the most important needs. And in the Old Testament, there's few people that God loves more or he cares about more or protects more or says he will vindicate more than widows. The apostles know this, and they are very much of the same mind. But at the same time, the apostles are the ones who are saying, first priorities first. We need to preach. Now, uh, you might be like I was for years when I read this, and I just thought, wow, the apostles seem like uh, they're, they're a little bit crotchety or cranky or something. I mean, what's the deal here? You know, they, they're supposed to be the ones to... Uh, feed people, to help people, but they understand something that I think we often misunderstand and we need to learn. It's not that the apostles are saying, that's a blue-collar job, I have a white-collar position, therefore I'm not going to help with it. That's not what they're saying. There is an aspect on one level where the apostles are certainly saying, we have a different role in this church community and we need to stick to that role. That's certainly one, on one level what's going on. But I think on a deeper level, what's going on is the apostles know that if they give up preaching, if they give up the ministry of the word, if they give up prayer, this whole thing will be meaningless. This whole thing won't count for anything. Food and clothing are important and are needed, but this shows us we have a deeper need. However much you think you need food, you have a deeper need. The word of God to us is more important than those basic needs. And the apostles know this. You see, we have to get these priorities right as a church. We have to get these priorities right as individual members of it. Personally, this means that each one of us who knows Christ needs to be nourished by God's word daily. One pastor I know it says it this way. He has a rule, and the rule is no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. Now, that can obviously easily get very legalistic, um, and that probably sounds very legalistic to you, but I think it does a good job of showing us the importance of the Word of God to us is, in some sense, very, a very real sense, more important than food. We have to have it. It is what nourishes us. It is what provides life for us. And so that's certainly what's happening here, that the priorities need to come in a certain order. And uh, this past week, we had the men's Bible study, and I I briefly mentioned this, but here's an example I think that would would help. Uh, It's often what I think of when I go to read the Bible for myself, uh, and uh, it's a story about buckets of water. Uh, And it's just a quick illustration. The story is like this, that there's a a young boy in a desert region, um, and he's in a a time where he and his village are in desperate need of water, desperate need of water, and they're in a drought. So he starts looking. He starts going out and searching to try to find water, and then he finally finds, as he stumbles on it, an oasis of pure water clean and beautiful. 
And as he does, first he fills himself and then he realizes that he's got to take as much of this back to the people in his village as he can. And not only that, he's got to tell all of them about this. This is the source of life. This is what they will need to get through their lives. And this, that illustration for us very much is what the word of God is. It's not only that you go to read it for yourself, but when you go and you hear the word of God and you sit under it and you are ministered by it, it's not just for you. It's for you to take to other people as well. And the apostles know this. Here's just a brief sketch for you. Many churches will fall into either becoming one, mercy, ministry oriented to the neglect of the word. This happens all the time where churches become so keyed up and so interested and so involved in mercy ministry. That's uh, mercy ministry towards widows, toward orphans, to the least of these as they need them. And those are good and those are important. But at the same time, the second sort of thing to fall into is becoming word ministry oriented without the works to validate the message. You've got to have both. And you've got to have both in a certain order. And the apostles know this and they set the church off straight with it. The same, and this isn't, this isn't new in the Bible to us. This is the same exact pattern that Jesus gave to us. That there is a pattern Jesus used in his earthly ministry. First, every time, word ministry. Every time. He goes into a city, he proclaims the gospel, word ministry. And then the meeting of felt needs. He heals a cripple. He brings a son back to life. Incredible felt needs. And this is what Jesus does. And the apostles, they have in their heads, they know the first priority must be the ministry of the word. And so it is for us. The result of both word ministry and mercy ministry was growth. And that's what we see in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. Why? Because the priorities were right. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's read into uh, verses 3 through 6. Therefore, the brothers pick out from yourselves... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the, the uh, solution that they propose is, you know what? We can't do that. We have a different responsibility, but we still need it done. And so they choose seven men to do it, and they devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And then they chose men to become table waiters, or another way you could say it is deacons, deacons in the church. And so the assessment is what? We need more leaders. We need more leaders. And there are men that God has raised up in our midst to lead that way. They're godly. These are godly, trustworthy men. But not only are they godly, they're also gifted in particular ways to help the people. And you see the wisdom in the early church here. Not only are they godly, but they're also particularly gifted. How so? The names, it's easy for us to miss in English, but the names, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Firminus, Nicholas, they're all Greek names. These are all names of men who are not a part of the the Hebrew, the Aramaic speaking 
part of the Jews, the Greek-speaking part of the Jews. These are men who know the needs of their people. And this is how God helps his church in the beginning of his church, that he provides men who know the needs of their people. And this is also where we see some of the first instruction about deacons in the New Testament. And just a quick word on that. We have deacons. We have three of them. And if you ever go through the deacon process, you'll get some of this. Uh, But deacons have responsibilities in the church. And you can summarize off of this that they do three things. They meet the physical needs of people in their midst. They promote unity in the body. And they support the ministry of the word. They meet physical needs. They promote unity in the body. And they support the ministry of the word. These things are the things that these table waiters, these deacons are doing by serving. We can't have a divorce between word ministry and mercy ministry. We have to have a unification of them. And when that happens, then we have power. We have growth as the early church experienced. And we need this. We need biblically qualified leaders in our church. We need leaders that God provides in our church. So we see the first internal conflict of the church happens. And the solution is to pick seven men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And the upshot of that is that the word of God continues to increase. You could say that the fire of God's church at this point was not put out, but became larger. Similar to the last chapter, opposition to the church now turns outward, but it ratchets up to a whole nother level. In the last chapter, we have Ananias and Sapphira who, who experience and lead, in some sense, an internal problem in the church, mainly with them. And then it goes outward again. So this, the same model, last week to this week, first inward, then outward. And the outward part now turns to What we have is our second point, the external persecution of the church. So I'll go ahead and read in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and then a whole bunch of people. I won't read it all for you again. But a whole bunch of people, uh, and they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was speaking. So here we have not only the internal conflict of the church, but we have the external persecution of the church that begins to happen. Stephen is in a category almost all his own in terms of deacons and his role in the New Testament and certainly in his position in Acts. Stephen here not only is serving the church, but he is up every week, probably every day, arguing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And as he does that, Luke presents for us some details that are so important. We see that Stephen here, Stephen here is arguing publicly, not just with one person or two people, with whole groups of people, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, Stephen, I mean, dozens of men. And they come up and they argue against him. No, Jesus is not the Christ. No, you are wrong. No, this church is a cult. And he is arguing day in and day out. And what, how is he characterized by this? That they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This highlights to us again God's unstoppable movement of the gospel throughout Acts. Unstoppable. It could very well be 20 verses 1, and they still lost. This is the sort of power that is behind you when you go to share the gospel. And this is another reason why you need not be afraid of sharing the gospel, whether with family or friends or coworkers. God will save whom he will save. This message will penetrate. It will bring about what he desires. And Stephen is a part of that. In verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So what happens now that they realize, Stephen's opponents, they realize they can't beat him outright. I mean, they, they're wrong. They just realized that. There's some, there's some way that they realize that we can't beat him this way. So what do they do? They secretly go and get men and instigate other people against Stephen. Not with any light claims, but with a serious claim. And they say that he's blasphemous, which is worthy uh, most of the time by death. Death is what's merited for blasphemy in the Jewish culture, especially at that time. And so they stirred people up. Now, there's something really important for us here. Uh, what, What are they doing? They know they can't win. These men are not interested in learning. Stephen's opponents are not interested in learning. They're interested in winning. And it does not matter what happens or what the means are. All they want to do is win. I see this all the time. I don't really get on Facebook that much, but I see it all the time, especially when I get on Facebook, uh, where people are talking about politics. Not that politics are bad and we don't have a God-given responsibility to engage in them, especially for the good and especially because of the way our nation is set up. But so often, arguments are thrown out and the purpose is not learning. The purpose is not trying to figure out what is actually true. The purpose is, I want to beat them. That's all I want to do. I don't care what they say. I don't care what arguments they have. I don't care. I just want to win. This is the attitude of Stephen's opponents. It doesn't only happen in politics, it happens in theology too. Having come from somewhere which was a a pretty big theological hub of the nation uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, I saw this all the time. People just want to sit down and argue theology, and some theology needs to be argued. It needs to be defended, it needs to be presented, it needs to be thought through. But That is not what these men are doing. All they want to do is win. And and Stephen here is in, he's in a spot where he knows this and he continues to tell the truth. There's a phrase by theologian J.I. Packer that I found very helpful through the years. uh, And it certainly helped me this week in reading through this passage and trying to figure out what is happening with these men. And uh, J.I. Packer says it this way. It might be something worth writing down for you. I I know it was memorizing for me, but a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. I'll say it again. A half-truth, that is something that's not 
completely true, but it has elements of it. A half truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. That's what is happening here. These men present half or some of the truth while also mixing it with lies. This is the most difficult kind of deceit and everyone buys it. And it's the same kind of thing that Satan does in the garden with Adam and Eve. Didn't God say that you would be wise? Well, yes, he did say I would be wise, but he also said I shouldn't have it, right? It, it It is that sort of deceit that's going on that is so difficult to navigate. And it only leads to more fallacious claims. And so one way you could think about it is, is this. Uh, hypothetically, just to throw a hypo- hypothetical out there, uh, if one of my kids was to lock me out of the house when I went to go get the mail, hypothetically, and uh, I come back and find the door locked, then of course there would be some time to figure out how to get in and, and all that if I could get in. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that after uh, an inquisition ensues and I get in the house and confession happens, then um, I know I've gotten the truth. I know I've gotten it. I've extracted it. And this is very much the job of parents. What is the truth? Tell me what actually happened uh, for the hundredth time. And, and so hypothetically, if, if that happens, and then you feel like you got to the bottom of it, you know what really happened You've, you've had confession and you've had some reconciliation. And then at the same time, let's say a child after that would say, you know what? I did it. I'll, I'll tell you why I did it, dad. I did it because I wanted to show you I'm a big boy now. Is that really the case? Did you really just do that because you wanted to show me that you're bigger? Or is it because you're angry, I told you not to play anymore, right? There's a serious amount of discernment that's needed in that situation. And that's the sort of thing that a half truth, the half truth is, uh, yes, I did lock you out. The whole truth is I did it because I was angry with you. Um, But half truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes an untruth. It's a lie. And that's what's happening with these men and with Stephen. And it leads to more fallacious claims. And so in verse 13, he says, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against his, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The claims. What are the claims? The claims are Stephen speaks against Moses, God, and the temple, just like Jesus did. In one sense, half truth, completely true. In another sense, totally false. And there is a great irony here, a tremendous irony. These men, Stephen's opponents, they do something. They, they put up false witnesses. Now, for us, we have a kind of different judicial system. But for Hebrews, for Jews, it very much hinged on, on having faithful witnesses. 
it would be very easy just to get two or three witnesses to come together to say something wrong, to say a lie, and then someone die or suffer horribly because of it. This was uh, an incredibly important point in the judicial system for the Jews. And so God provided instruction for it. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, he says, you shall not, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your brother. And in Deuteronomy 19, provides a little bit of example uh, for how to deal with that. And so I'll read it to you in Deuteronomy 19, 18 and 19. The judges shall inquire diligently. So this takes a lot of work. I mean, you got to have some discerning minds to figure out some things sometimes. The judges shall inquire diligently. And in, if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he is meant to do to his brother. The, the consequence, the repercussion of providing false witnesses is you experience whatever judgment you would have had them have. And the harrowing thing about this example is that obviously they wanted to kill Stephen. And the amazing thing here, the incredible irony, is that these men are breaking the law by saying that Stephen is breaking the law. They are breaking the law by providing false witnesses to say Stephen's breaking the law, and by God's own instruction to them, they should be stoned and killed and not Stephen. And how does Stephen respond to this? He is serene. He is serene, sitting in the council, and everyone can see it. And there's more to it than just being serene. Both the internal conflict that we saw and the external persecution against the church had a certain result. They came together to produce something. They came together to produce something in Stephen even at this point. And at least to our our third point for today, which is the result of conflict and persecution on the church. This is true for Stephen and it's true for the church on the whole. Let's go back to verse 7 to see part of it. So what is the result of the internal conflict that happens. You could say that there are results, but there's one big result that we'll focus on. Uh, One smaller result in verse seven, we see that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A result certainly is that the word of God continues unhindered and people hear the gospel and are changed. But do you notice that it is the priests, a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, the the priests are uh, not so much the hierarchy in in, uh, Israel, but they are very much a, a lay group of people and a very godly group of people. And what they do as they interact with all these new Christians in the temple where they're all meeting together is they see something in these Christians that they don't see in their own religion, that they don't see even in their own brotherhood as priests. The priests, many of the priests became believers. Why? It's because internally the conflict in the church became, made the church become gracious and caring. The internal conflict the church experienced caused them to become more gracious and caring for one another, such that the priests were were becoming Christians. They saw this 
this unification of of Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. They saw it come together and they said, that's not normal. We don't see that anywhere else. We don't even see that within our own sex. We, we don't see that happening. Why? It's because the church, through conflict, became more gracious and caring for one another. The priests saw a group of people that were more concerned about one another than themselves. And it helped them see how wonderful Christ is. And that's not all. That's just the internal component, but there's also an external one. In the external one, you see that Stephen, yes, as one person, became more gracious and more caring for those in the church, but at the same time, he became bolder and more passionate about Jesus. The opposition he faced, even unjust opposition, didn't deter him from pressing forward. He plunged in. It fueled the flame for Stephen. It caused him and the rest of the church to become incredibly bold and passionate about sharing this good news of Jesus, forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This conflict, internal conflict, and the external persecution came together to create for the church graciousness and caring, a caring attitude, and at the same time, a bold and compassionate mindset. And there's another thing. You could say, you could say those, are, those are true, those are good, but they're really just parts. They're really just aspects of what Jesus is like, of how he behaved. And so ultimately, I think the result of those two things coming together in the church is displayed best in Stephen to say that it made the church more like Jesus Internal conflict and external persecution made Stephen certainly more like Jesus. And how? Well, very much Stephen suffered in the same way Jesus did. And I'll just give you some examples of this. I'll give you seven. Jesus debated with the religious leaders. So did Stephen. Jesus told the truth, though he was hated for it. So did Stephen. Jesus had false witnesses testify against him. So did Stephen. Jesus experienced arrest by hypocritical men. So did Stephen. Jesus supposedly spoke against Moses, God, in the temple. So did Stephen. Jesus had to answer to the high priest. And so did Stephen. Jesus did nothing wrong. So did Stephen. Nothing wrong. Not only did Stephen suffer like Jesus, but he also had a, a shining face like Moses. This is something that's a little different. So we see that that these two things make Stephen certainly more like Jesus, but what is this thing going on about his face shining and looking like an angel? You know, for years, I just thought that this was a way of saying that Peter was fully at peace with what was going on. He had a good, clean conscience, and it did not keep him from doing what he needed to do. That's a very real part to this, very real part. But there's a much bigger thing that's going on here. And we see it, as Brent talked about last week, with somewhat of an arc between Exodus on the one hand and Acts on the other. There's a tremendous arc in the Bible between these two books. And going back to Exodus 34, there is another person with a shiny face 
like an angel here. And it's in Exodus, Exodus 34, 29 through 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai when the two, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. This is what we would uh, call an illusion in biblical terms that what's going on with Stephen is very much an illusion alluding back to what had happened with Moses and what happened with Moses. Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God, Mount Sinai, and he receives the tablets, the testimony from God, and that gives him a glory of sorts. It makes his face shine. It is a revelation of God. So Moses goes up through the mountain to meet with God face to face. And as he does, he brings back down the mountain with him, the revelation of who God is. You want to know what God is like? This is what he's like. And people can see it and they're terrified. And that's not the only thing that's going on. There's a huge difference here. Why does Luke include this in this story? There's a huge, huge difference between Moses and Stephen. Absolutely tremendous. Moses, Moses receives the revelation of who God is in his wrath, in his law, do's and don'ts. And it is glorious. It is wonderful. It is praiseworthy. Stephen has a different revelation. And Paul will talk about it in 2 Corinthians to say that it, it is a better revelation. It is far better. The huge difference here with Stephen is that his revelation is incalculably better than Moses. Moses saw who God was and it is overwhelming. It is terrifying. It is wonderful. Stephen here with shining face, like face of an angel, which is to say a messenger, brings a revelation of who God is that, that was unknown to most people at the time, which is his grace. The law came through Moses, but Stephen sees God in a fuller way. He sees that grace and truth came through the Son, came through Jesus. Hebrews would say this way, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to see God, if you want to see what it's like, if you want to see his revelation, you look Hebrews says to Jesus, you can have no better picture of who God is than to look at Christ. And not only that, but we see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians this, and I'm sure, I, I can't help but believe that as Paul wrote this, as Paul wrote this, he was there in the council seeing Stephen's face like an angel. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel, who is the image of God. When Paul, years later, thought about this situation, he sees there is a revelation of God that is better than Moses. It's better, and it's Christ. And his gospel, 
And so what is the gospel? The gospel is that you and I, because of our own sin, are completely worthy of God's judgment. Completely. The law, it is, it is praiseworthy for God to say yes. That sinners demand condemnation. And at the same time, it is praiseworthy, more praiseworthy in some ways to God to say, yes, I have received grace through the Son. So you are dead in your sins and trespasses in which you previously walked, but God has made you alive in Christ. And this is what Stephen saw. This is why his face was shining. Because he believed this and he knew it. And so I have to ask you this morning, have you seen that? You see, there's, there's a couple different things going on here. It is completely possible on the one hand to hear this news of Jesus dying in your place for your sins on the cross and raising from the dead. It is completely possible to hear that and be changed, as we saw with many of the priests were. It is also completely possible for you to hear that news and in some sense for Stephen, Stephen's hearers, to see that news and to be completely unchanged by it, completely unmoved. And so if you haven't believed in Christ, I urge you, look to him, see him. He is for you, your only hope. And not only that, but for the believer, you see, for Stephen and the early church, the internal conflict that was happening and the external persecution, it came together to produce for the church, the early church, Christ-likeness. It came together, those two things, to produce Christ-likeness for Stephen. And the question, certainly for us this morning, as we read, is will it produce that for you? When those two things come together in life for you, will they produce that for you? By God's grace and by his gospel, it will. Let's pray.